0: Anthony Chadwick from the webinar vet welcoming you to another episode of vet chat. Uh, today we have our CFO on, on the line, uh, buddy who is, uh, just wanting to join us today. And of course we also have Ron Offrey, the very esteemed and very good friend of mine ophthalmologist based over in uh, Tel Aviv. Ron, obviously before we start, I just want to, um, say that, you know, our thoughts are with you in these difficult times that you're in and, uh, Let's hope for a better 2024. Hey,
1: indeed, uh, yes. I know this is going on the air in February, but we're recording it um, mid-December. And yes, let's hope for a peaceful 2024.
0: We we go back a long way, Ron. We'll I'll, I'll I'll start with my visual aid, which is this beautiful book that you gave me when we met in I think it was um, was it Seville or Valencia.
1: Seville in,
0: in, uh, at the SEBC a few years ago and it's much treasured by me um, obviously we've got all the signatures in as well and ophthalmology is, is closest to my heart as you know I did dermatology but I spent a lot of time working at the animal medical center in close collaboration with Pip Boydell and we often talked about eyes and skin being connected there were certainly um, issues around eyelids and and uh, things that would mean that both of us could have an opinion on it. So uh, this has always been a treasured uh, part of my bookshelf. So thank you so much again. Um, and thanks for all the contributions you give to webinar vet because you've done many webinars for us over the years. Uh, as we talked recently, some of those possibly need refreshing because one of my other favorite lecturers, apart from yourself, is a professor, uh, retired now up at Texas A&M, Mike Willard who said quite often on lectures everything I taught you 10 years ago was a lie I just didn't realize so the 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 veterinary medicine is always progressing and some of the things we talked about five six years ago we probably want to have a slightly different angle on now don't we
1: yes let's be diplomatic and call it a mistake rather than a lie
0: (laughs) yes I agree I will let you get away with that one (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it's really great to have you on the podcast.
1: Um, Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. A, obviously,
0: a great friend of, of mine in the veterinary profession. We've known each other a long time, but perhaps those people who don't know you as well, give us a little history of uh, your veterinary history, as it were.
1: Um, yeah, well, people always ask me how I became interested in ophthalmology and... And like many other things in life, it's thanks to a great teacher. Uh, My personal story is that actually I am a member or I was a member of the charter class of our school, uh, which opened up in 1985. Prior to that, there was no veterinary school in Israel. Uh, They opened in 1985. And similar to the American system, you had to have a pre-vet education in order to apply. I was fortunate enough to just graduate at the right moment with a degree in biology. I applied, and I was accepted. But since it was a new school, uh, they lacked teachers and professors in many areas and many disciplines. So what they did is invite speakers from overseas to teach uh, specialities for which they had no instructors. and. Really, they invited some of the biggest names uh, in the time, Uh, you know, Bob Hamlin for cardiology and Cornelius taught us uh, the liver disease and Kaneko taught us uh, biochemistry. Maybe these names don't mean too much to the younger audience, uh, but in the 1980s, they were really the leaders in their field. And for ophthalmology, they brought Kirk Gillette, who is considered by many the grandfather of veterinary ophthalmology. He... Has written the Bible of, or edited the Bible of veterinary ophthalmology for many years. He's first editor of the journal. At the time, he was dean of Florida and he came over to Israel uh, to teach us ophthalmology for three weeks. What they did is those people would come for three weeks and they would teach us everything from A to Z. So, like yeah. Kirk came over and taught us the embryology of the eye, the anatomy, the physiology, pharmacology. Uh, clinic, surgery, and pathology, three weeks of pure ophthalmology, and I fell in love. I kept in touch with him when he went back to Florida. That was back before email was invented, so we'd write letters and stick stamps on the envelope and write each other, uh, but we kept in touch, and when I graduated, I told him I want to come to Florida, and um, he said, come on over, and I did, and I spent four amazing years at the University of Florida, training in veterinary ophthalmology, um, getting my PhD. At the time, it was really the best place in the world for veterinary ophthalmology. Um, They did want me to stay there uh, when I was done, and I'm still remembered as the only person in the history of Florida who turned them down, but home is home. And after four years, I was yearning to go back home, so I packed my bags, and I've been here the
0: University of Jerusalem ever since. Well, a great story. And I, I don't think I've heard that story before. Did Kirk go to stay in Florida or did he go up to Cornell or who was in Cornell?
1: Uh, no, in Cornell, we had uh, Tom Kern, I guess, who's maybe one of the oldest guys. Uh, later, Gus Guiri moved to Cornell for many years. Uh, Kirk. In early stages of his career was in Minnesota and maybe Kansas. I don't remember. Uh, Then he migrated to Florida with a colony of beagles, beagles with glaucoma. And I know glaucoma is uh, a subject of uh, great interest to you. Uh, A colony of beagles with inherited glaucoma, which he kept for 30 years. you would walk into his office and on the wall, there'd be a family tree going back 30 years of... Beagles with primary open angle glaucoma, and those beagles generated lots of grants, uh, lots of papers, lots of PhDs, because uh, they were a model for uh, for human glaucoma. Mm.
0: I remember I won the Frank Beattie Travel Scholarship in '97 and went to Cornell to do dermatology, and ended up spending time with Danny Scott and Bill Miller, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I woke up one day with a really painful eye. And uh, didn't know whether it was some sort of allergy or whatever, but it felt like there was something grating on the eye. And uh, the ophthalmology department was next door to the dermatology department. So I went to see them and there was nobody there. And they said, i oh, come back a bit later. And I came back and there's still nobody there. And my eye was really, really sore. I ended up, at the end of the day, I found somebody from the ophthalmology department. They stuck some uh, uh, lignocaine, procaine into my eye and diverted the, the lower lid and found a nice piece of grit in there that had been rubbing up and down in my cornea, already abrading the cornea a bit, realizing how painful that can be, which I've since suffered after a a piece of uh, eye surgery, you know, when uh, there was another little abrasion. Corneal abrasions ulcers are painful things. But of course, once the piece was taken out, it was, uh, it was so much better. And, it was then that I got even more gratitude for ophthalmologists because that was a, a, a painful, painful eye. And I think you've done webinars for us on that sort of acute, painful eye. It's uh, There yes. can be all sorts of things that can get into eyes and cause problems, can't there?
1: Uh, yes, indeed, you know. And you mentioned it was something below your eyelid. Let's not forget that our patients have three eyelids. So there is yeah. even more room for foreign objects, foreign bodies uh, to... Yeah irritate the eye and you're right the cornea is one of the most richly and not one of the the most richly innervated uh, tissue in the body uh, so they can be very painful Uh, strangely enough it's the superficial cornea which is richly innervated actually there's there are fewer Uh, sensory nerves in the deeper cornea, so in a bit of a paradox, uh, superficial ulcers are more painful than deep ulcers, and sometimes when deep ulcers, and when an ulcer progresses from superficial to deep, uh, the owners think, aha, things are getting better because the dog is less painful, when in fact it's less painful because there's less nerves there, but in fact it's worsening, it's just gotten deeper.
0: Going back to glaucoma, which I know is one of your favorites, uh, or should we say one of those subjects that you battle with the most in in ophthalmology.
1: Yes, I um, call it my I nemesis.
0: Always, yeah, your nemesis, as you said. Um, I have a, a family history. It's presents that have been given to me by my grandfather, who I don't remember. He was I was two when he died. He lived with us at home. And he went blind with glaucoma and that was obviously in the late sixties. And then of course my mum and dad both had glaucoma from both sides. So my granddad was my mum's father and then my dad developed glaucoma, but they were both in their sort of sixties from what I can remember when they developed it. I have, you know, I had very, very good vision up until my mid forties. And, uh, I went to see my auntie in Australia who unfortunately was dying. I wanted to see her before she passed. And, um, She said, Anthony, your eyes are really, really red. You should go and see an optician when you go back. Because I'd never been to an optician, even though in the UK, once you reach 40, if you have a history of glaucoma in the family, you can get free consults. But my eyes were so good. I didn't wear glasses. I could see really well. So I never went. And then post coming back from seeing my auntie in Australia, I went to the optician. My eyes were possibly starting to just blur a bit. So he said, "Mm, Mm -hmm. you might need you know, a light pair of glasses, but actually, the right hand, the right back of the eye mm, doesn't look in a great shape in the on the, the retina. So I was referred to the to the ophthalmologist. And obviously, the optician optometrist had also found that I had high pressures in my eye as well, which mm-hmm. is obviously a can be a sign of glaucoma. And then I, I had the diagnosis of pigmentary dispersion syndrome. Oh. Uh, the only positive Ron, I was 45, 46 at the time, and, and they called it young person's glaucoma. So there's always a silver <laughs> cloud to every lining. I came back feeling good about the fact that people were still classing me as a young person at 46. But otherwise, uh, one of the things personally has made me do is appreciate, although my sight isn't as good as it was, I you know, need to wear glasses for long distance. You actually appreciate your sight a lot more when you realize that maybe it isn't as perfect as, as a young person, you take a lot of these things for granted, don't you?
1: Yes, indeed, and you know, numerous surveys show that that's the one sense that people are most afraid of losing. And um, yes, you're right in so many ways, because uh, the damage caused to the retina, and to the optic nerve. Uh, as a result of glaucoma, is something that we cannot repair. Uh, The retina does not regenerate. The optic nerve does not regenerate. So when you're diagnosed with glaucoma, whether you're a human or a canine or a feline patient, um, the aim of treatment will be to lower intraocular pressure and to stop further damage. But any damage that has occurred prior to the diagnosis and initiation of treatment, any vision that has been lost prior to the initiation of treatment, Mm -hmm. uh, will never recover, which is really a problem. Because as you know, in veterinary medicine, uh, many owners would show up at the terminal stage, really, uh, when it's too late, when the eye is already irreversibly blind. They're not as fortunate as you were to go to an optician and he looks at the retina and says, Oh, you should go see an ophthalmologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sort of, uh, it creeps up on them and they don't realize it until it's too late. And yeah, often, um, when presented with a patient with glaucoma, uh, we are really concentrating on the unaffected eyes in cases yeah. when it's inherited glaucoma. This one is still seeing, uh, I can fight for it. I can try and preserve vision. Um, This one, I'm sorry, may be lost. Yeah. And uh, that's a point you mentioned the webinars. Uh, I always bring up, you know, when in doubt, treat the unaffected eye. This affected eye may be lost. The unaffected eye is still visual. That should remove, uh, receive uh, prophylactic treatment. Do you want to become a part of the largest online veterinary community in the world? The Webinar Vets membership is the perfect tool to easily complete your veterinary CPD or CE. Watch webinars anytime, any place on any connected device. Become a member today and explore our library of over 2000 premium quality webinars. We also care about the environment as well as your CPD or CE. That's why we plant trees for every one of our members. To find out more, visit thewebinarvet.com forward slash memberships or click on the membership tab on our website.
0: Sometimes, obviously, you get a lens luxation that can cause glaucoma. So, removing lenses quickly can obviously save the eye from going into terminal decline. Do Absolutely. you think. Do, should we as part of clinical exams look more seriously at doing tonometry? Because it's something, you know, I don't think I ever did in veterinary practice. Um, is that something that we should be doing more routinely, perhaps in older animals or in certain breeds that are more prone? I would say in
1: certain breeds, definitely. Um, it is something that should be done and uh, you can find lists of different uh, Reads with a inherited glaucoma. However, if you're talking to- yes, every veterinary clinic really should have a tonometer uh, in order to measure intraocular pressure. Maybe not as part of the routine screening, but definitely to manage your both your glaucoma and uveitis cases. You do need a tonometer. I'd say that if you want to add a, an ophthalmic diagnostic technique to your arsenal always practice ophthalmoscopy on every patient that walks into your clinic because number one it's not an easy technique Uh, it does require practice and number two there is lots of variations in the appearance of a normal fundus both uh, especially in our canine patients Uh, so if the first time you're trying ophthalmoscopy is when an owner comes in complaining of a blind patient I'd say it's pretty much a waste of time. If you haven't mastered the technique, if you don't know uh, to recognize normal variations, uh, you'll be lost. Uh, So I always say every patient that comes into your clinic, whether it's for vaccination or a flea problem or diarrhea, just take a quick look in the eye, two seconds, just to A, uh, familiarize yourself with the technique and B, familiarize yourself with the normal appearance of the fundus and I I find also that clients always appreciate it you know it's like they saw uh, Grey's Anatomy that the doctor always examines uh, the fundus and wow my dog uh, got the same treatment it always impresses them.
0: And really with glaucoma we're looking for atrophy potentially of the blood vessels around but you also get this sort of halo aura effect around the actual fundus as well don't you with uh, glaucoma?
1: Yeah. Well, there's lots of signs of glaucoma for owners to notice. As you said, red eye would be one of them, blue eye due to corneal edema. Sometimes if it's really a sensitive owner, they would notice that the pupil is more dilated than normal or doesn't constrict as much as in daytime. And those are really alert owners who'd come at an early stage. Um, But really, if I could go back to the irreversible damage that is being caused uh, to the retina, Uh, one of the most exciting things in areas in glaucoma research is what we call neuroprotective treatment. And the idea behind that is that when we give drugs to lower intraocular pressure, it is really a losing battle. Once glaucoma is started, we can try this drug or that drug or drug combination or maybe surgery. Within a year or two, most of our veterinary patients will become blind, despite the fa- and humans also become blind, bes- despite the fact that we lower their intraocular pressure. So neuroprotection, which actually be- began in neurology, is a new therapeutic approach whereby you say... Forget controlling intraocular pressure, because it's something we do not excel in. Uh, Let's concentrate on actually protecting the retina and protecting the optic nerve from damage. And there are lots of promising drugs. um, These in rodents. They work very well. Unfortunately, they work less well in humans and dogs uh, that can protect the retina and the optic nerve from damage, despite elevated intraocular pressure. And that I think therein lies a big hope for glaucoma patients that we combine hypotensive treatment with treatment to protect the optic nerve and uh, the retina and prevent this damage.
0: And looking at uh, pressure wise, similar in humans, sort of 20 is where we start to get concerned about pressure Mm -hmm. Uh, numbers in the same in dog and cat.
1: Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, actually, that's an interesting subject unto itself. There, is, there are numerous papers uh, debating the subject of what is safe IOP. And you've touched on a very interesting point here, because really glaucoma is one disease that I always tell my students, the more we learn about it, the less we understand it. Uh, when you and I were students, uh, glaucoma was an easy disease. Uh, pressure goes up, you have glaucoma, pressure comes down, you've cured glaucoma. And with the years, we've come to realize that really glaucoma is a multifactorial disease, at least in people, and there are many risk factors in play. Elevated intraocular pressure is probably the most common and most significant one, but the immune system plays a role in it. Uh, blood circulation in the retina plays a role in the pathogenesis of glaucoma. Um, and lots and lots of other factors that come into play uh, to the point where in people you actually have what is called normotensive glaucoma, meaning glaucoma with all the hallmarks of glaucoma, with the damage to the optic nerve and the retina, but it's normotensive, pressure would be normal, and that is about one-third of the glaucoma cases in people, uh, which is really scary. Um, So there is really no safe IOP for some uh, people with problems with the immune system or blood circulation in the retina. It may be lower, maybe 12, Mm. 13, 14. For others, it may be 20. It's really individual because of all the other factors that are in play.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I actually have uh, pigmentary dispersion syndrome, which the doctor has explained will probably get better as i get older so i'll reach a point in my 60s hopefully where actually the the pressures would almost drop naturally and then it's the damage that's been done over the last you know 10 15 20 years and of course then your eyes deteriorate as you get older as well you lose mm-hmm. neurons so it's how you can slow that progress down as people are living older uh, and uh you know potentially Dying before you go blind, I suppose, is the way that you you look at it. Is pigmentary dispersion syndrome a problem in dogs or cats? Is that a disease? Uh, we
1: do have it in a couple of dog breeds, uh, not in cats, but uh, Karen terriers have a similar disease, pigmentary glaucoma, and um, golden retrievers and a few other breeds have a type of glaucoma caused by cysts that are in the eye that burst, and they disperse pigment, causing secondary uveitis and glaucoma. So uveal cysts, uh, in many breeds, it's an incidental finding. It's just a nice balloon floating in the eye. But in, especially in golden retrievers and a few other breeds, if you see it, it's cause for concern because it may pop, disperse mm. pigment, and, uh, as you say, cause pigmentary uveitis, pigmentary glaucoma.
0: And the pigment is interesting because it sort of blocks the angle, doesn't it? Right. And then you actually need the macrophages to get busy in actually eating up that uh, that pigment. So Absolutely. I've ended up in the situation where um, drops weren't working. I've had surgery, which has been an interesting. It's not been a trabeculectomy. This particular surgeon does viscocannulostomies, which is sort of, at a he doesn't go right through the membrane because eye surgery with pre- trabeculectomies and so on there's a danger you can drop the pressure too much, can't you?
1: Right. Uh, yes. Surgery is another interesting aspect of glaucoma. Um, as you say, um, if in if you're a general practitioner and you feel that you are unable to control pressure medically, then you should definitely refer the patient to a veterinary ophthalmologist because we do have some options. Uh, For some surgical options, including laser and other means of partially destroying the ciliary body and lowering production of aqueous humor, we do have shunts and other surgical procedures similar to what you're describing to increase outflow from the eye. So we do have surgical options, and they would be a reason to refer your glaucoma cases to a specialist. As far as general practitioners go, I regret to say that the most, uh, uh, the surgery will be performed most commonly is uh, enucleation, unfortunately. Because uh, yeah. often we do end up with an eye that is irreversibly blind, because I said the blind the damage is irreversible and painful because we're unable to control pressure medically, in which case enucleation uh, may be the best option. And that's yeah. another thing yeah. I've stressed in my webinar is a very important point. Uh, there is a very important difference between cases of acute glaucoma and chronic glaucoma. Because uh, yeah. if the dog has become blinded with acute glaucoma, the owners can see that it's painful and they will not argue with you when you recommend the nucleation. However, in cases of chronic glaucoma, when it's sort of crept up on them very, very gradually, uh, when you recommend the nucleation, they'll say, what the heck? You know, my dog is not painful. It eats, it drinks, it plays, it goes outdoors. It is absolutely fine. No, it is not in pain. And... The analogy I always give them in this case is think of glaucoma as a migraine, okay? People with a migraine also wake up, they brush their teeth, they go to work, they come back in the evening, uh, they watch some TV, they go to a pub with a friend, Uh, yeah, just like a dog, you know, they walk, they eat, they play, but they are suffering constantly because of the migraine. And same with those canine patients with a chronic glaucoma, they are in constant pain, and the proof is that when I win the argument and I convince them to nucleate, um, they come back two weeks later for removal of sutures. And the first thing they'll say is, the dog is five years younger. Yeah. It is so much more active. It is so much more pain, uh, playful, because yeah. we have removed the migraine. Uh, so don't give, a, don't take the owner's word for it. Think of the migraine analogy and insist on nucleation and we've got surveys out a couple of them published in the United Kingdom showing 96% satisfaction rate for owners who agreed uh, to performing inucleation in their pets
0: dogs are resilient aren't they and they don't show pain they don't you know it's not always in their interest to show it and they will cope with life yep the same analogy is that dog that you diagnose in the waiting room because you can smell the the rotten teeth and you take those teeth out and the dog comes back a week, 10 days later with the same thing. You know, my dog is five years younger. So it's pain is is insidious. And if it's happening chronically, mm-hmm. people don't recognize it because it, the dog has been like this for months, months, potentially years. Right. Take that eye away. Take those teeth away. You've taken away the source of pain. The, the dog cat improves immensely.
1: Absolutely, though. <laughs> that reminds me. I was once uh, giving a lecture uh, alongside a dentist in China back in the days before COVID when we could still visit China yeah. and we were talking about nucleation. He was talking about teeth extraction. And I told him, Gosh, you're so lucky. You know, you've got 30 something, 30 some teeth you can remove. One, two, three, four. No, I can take out one eye. I take out the other eye, I'm done, you know?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) That's all I have. (laughs) Uh, uh, So he's much more fortunate in that, uh, yeah, we ophthalmologists, we regard the nucleation really as euthanasia. I'm killing my patient. If I take out the other eye, uh, that's it. I have nothing to do. But as I said, in the case of glaucoma, it really needs to be done when the eye is irreversibly yeah. blind and you can't
0: control pressure. And actually, dogs cope so well with sense of smell and things. You know, even a totally blind dog mm-hmm. can get around because he's he or she is familiar with the house setup. Uh, it's amazing how well they will do, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know...
1: Um we, as ophthalmologists uh, or as veterinarians, we have many blind patients, you, not just because of nucleation, most commonly because of retinal atrophy or mm-hmm. um, long term uveitis, and they'll be irreversibly blind. But, like you say, uh, they can cope very well, and um, there are lots of websites out there and help guides and books uh, with lots of tips. And you should always refer owners of blind patients to these websites or maybe have them buy one of these books. They are full of wonderful advice and wonderful heartwarming stories about, like you said, how well the animals can cope while being blind. It is definitely not a death sentence.
0: Ron I think Buddy is just saying he feels that we've been too dog-centric and we can't really call this a pod cat mm. because cats haven't been mentioned about enough. How about just the last couple of minutes where does glaucoma fit in, in in cats is it as common what are the common conditions within that and and how are we best to deal with cats mm-hmm. who sometimes can be a yeah. bit more difficult to dose and things than dogs anyway?
1: Uh, yeah thank you for bringing it up so in dogs Uh, There are studies that show us that about 50% of the case uh, glaucoma cases are due to uveitis. 50% of them are due to inheritance. And as I've said earlier, it's inherited cases where you should treat the unaffected eye. Um, In cats, glaucoma is nearly always secondary to uh, uveitis. There is very, very... Uh, inherited glaucoma is very rare in cats, uh, so it's nearly always secondary to uveitis, and therefore, when you're presented with a cat with glaucoma, you should suspect uveitis, which means you should suspect some primary disease that triggered the uveitis, and that cat needs a comprehensive workup, a physical exam, uh, blood work, serology, chest x-rays, whatever, in order to look for the primary reason which caused the primary disease, the systemic disease, which caused uveitis, which caused uh, glaucoma. Same I should add for cataracts in cats. Uh, In dogs, the two most common reasons for cataracts are diabetes and inheritance. Neither one of them is a common cause of cataracts in cats. Again, in cats, the most common cause for cataract, cataracts in cats, uh, is uh, uveitis. So again, just like uh, with glaucoma, whenever you see a cat with cataract, suspect uveitis, suspect the primary disease, and do the workup. Though I should mention in this regard that studies show us that you can do a comprehensive workup, and in 40-50% of the cases, you will come up empty-handed. You will not find a primary disease. It will be idiopathic uveitis that cause glaucoma or uh, that cause caract. And this is something you should tell the owner beforehand. You should tell him, hey, I'm going to do all this workup, which is going to cost you hundreds of pounds. It's important to do the workup because maybe your cat has toxoplasma. Maybe it has fungal disease. Maybe it has this. Maybe it has that. We need to do the workup, but be prepared uh, that'll come up empty handed, it will be idiopathic uveitis. And it's always a good idea to warn owners in advance that they're gonna spend hundreds of pounds and everything may be normal. Tell them that literature shows yeah. us it happens in fifty percent of cases.
0: But he was that okay, was that a good answer? <laughs> he seems he seems happy, Ron. He seems uh, happy. He's, although he's not paying attention, he's got his back turned to you. Right. Which is plenty but... rude, so I apologize, <laughs> Ron. On behalf of,
1: of, of the cat. Apology accepted. Cat, you know, <laughs> dogs have owners and uh, cats have staff. You know, we're all staff to our kayak. Exactly.
0: I am uh, his butler. Yeah. So, uh, and and uh, Chief Petter when uh, he feels like he needs a, uh, needs a little stroke and a cuddle. Mm-hmm. He lets you know. Ron, it's been fabulous uh, chatting to you also learning uh, some about the the ancient history, which I think is fair to say now from the 80s that I I wasn't aware of, particularly the connection with Kirk Gelat, who is obviously such a big figure in in ophthalmology. So you've been very fortunate to have that that link with him. Absolutely, and it was
1: applied. I just saw him at the ACVO meeting in October, uh, two months ago in Boston. It was a real pleasure uh, to team up again with all my uh, former mentors from Florida. As, as I said at the beginning, good teacher is what it's all about.
0: Oh, it makes a big difference. And it's always good. My wife is a teacher. It's, it's always nice when we tell them how good they were. I remember uh, my professor of um, animal husbandry, Ron Anderson, we were there for a 100th anniversary of the vet school. And, you know, this was a professor and I was, you know, still a relatively young vet saying how much I'd enjoyed his lectures and how, you know, good he was. And you could tell he was genuinely touched. So if you if people are listening, uh, feel free to go out and uh, show gratitude and thanks to the, the professors and the teachers who've made a difference in your life. They, they're, they're never quite sure, but they can have a profound effect on people, can't they?
1: Absolutely. I'll Second that definitely.
0: Ron, thank you so much. I know how busy you are, so giving some time up is uh, you know, is a gift uh, to us at that chat and the webinar there, and I really appreciate it, and I've certainly learned a bit more about my glaucoma as well, so thank you well, so much, Ron.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a real honor and a real pleasure, and um, wish you a merry holiday season, and as we said earlier, a peaceful 2024, both yeah, to the people yeah. in the Middle East and people in the Ukraine, and
0: wherever throughout the world all over the world yeah absolutely that this is what the season is all about yes thank you so much ron Uh, thank you thanks everyone for listening hopefully see you on a podcast or a webinar very soon Uh, take care and uh, this has been vet chat and this is Anthony chadwick thank you very much bye-bye thank you bye-bye